Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon, and my show is called The Stories We Live By. And um, I, I wasn't going to do a show. In fact, I sometimes think about not doing the show anymore. When I get into the kind of mood I am in now, <clears throat> which is kind of a depressed mood and a feeling of great anxiety and worry, uh, not necessarily for myself. Um, I'm 80 years old, and I've lived my life, and I'd like to continue living it. But the real worry is not for my future, because at the best, I have a few years uh, hopefully, we'll get this pandemic under control, or there'll be a vaccine, and I'll be able to leave my house comfortably, go get a haircut without worrying about getting a fatal illness. Um, but the real anxiety uh, grows out of my insights as a psychologist, as somebody who philosophizes. And I'm watching what happened in my country, what's happening in my country. And if I look on television, if I watch the commentators on television, so many of them say this is a unique experience in our country. And it is in many ways, but it is not unique to the, anybody who studies history. And it is not unique... Um, it, it's not unique in any sense of the kind of stories, and I use those literally when I say we live by stories. I really believe that. The stories are the same stories that keep circulating. And my worry is that this country really can come apart and may come apart. And when I watch television... Everything seems to be divided up between good guys and bad guys, depending upon what TV station you watch. The stories they use to frame the events that are taking place upset me. Because from my point of view, and I want to go through my point of view, um, the very stories that most of us live by almost ensure that what is happening in the United States may, may or may not continue to happen, but it may, very may, might, and we will come undone, and there will be suffering, and there will be uh, a horror uh, that uh, I don't even want to think about, not necessarily for me or my wife, but for my children and especially my grandchildren. And I have been talking about on this show, and I've written now several books about the stories we live by and the elements within them that assure that we will hate each other, that we will come apart, that we will do damage to ourselves, to the planet we live on. And I got involved in, in this viewpoint because of my insights, the insights I developed uh, about the field I'm in. That is, a field dominated 
by a nonsensical psychiatric model, an application of medicine that's not really medicine. But I won't go through again. If anybody wants to read my book, I would start with not my book, but Thomas Zass, S-Z-A-S-Z, his book, The Myth of Mental Illness, um, which led me on this whole journey of understanding how most of our stories are structured so that they assure at varying points the possibility of people not loving each other but hating each other, not living together but killing each other. Um, and, and of late, assuring that we'll continue to damage the planet we live on so that increasingly becomes unlivable. And I don't think we're far away from that. Uh, the hurricane season has started. It's one of my great fears uh, living in Florida. And I think my wife and I have decided we're going to get the hell out of Florida. I love the winters here, but there's too much, too much about this state and its vulnerability to a new set of hurricanes that are bigger and stronger and more deadly than ever before. And no signs that the government or any government is taking it seriously enough to do what is necessary to halt the damage to the planet, uh, even recognize that the planet is in danger and that we are of this planet and we're not going anywhere. If we're destroyed, in my belief, <laughs> we won't wake up in a better place or a different place because that's one of the stories that I increasingly see as so destructive. So let me talk a little bit about this, that what we have done in our stories is everything is separate. We don't see, for most of us, an integration of who we are and where we live. And I've talked about all this before, but just briefly, most people seem to believe that they have a mind that's separate from a body and that the spirit resides within the body until the body dies. Uh, we use the word mind, but it was originally in the theology of, the, of 400, 500 years ago seen as pure spirit. We now have sort of accepted a secular mind, many of us, but for most people, intelligence and, and, and ability to be a good person or act and organize things uh, and focus is the spirit. And the spirit can be separated from the body, that the mind can be understood separate from the body. And that's impossible. We have a mind because we have a body because we have a body that minds and that what we mind about, that is think and feel and imagine, has to do with ourselves as beings and the beings of those around us and the beings uh, that live on the planet with us that we call animals and plants and that these are as much a part of us in many ways as anything else, that we have no language to describe the oneness 
the singularity of what we are in relation to the planet we live in and in, about ourselves. So the mind can get sick, according to the silly psychiatric model that I learned uh, as, in, grad, in college and graduate school and practiced with. I treated sick minds. No. Minds are activity. They're what the body does. <clears throat> and part of the, what the body does is what the brain does, an integral part of the body. And partly because we don't feel what our brain does, like our, feel our legs walking, our arms moving, our hands clenching, <clears throat> our voice coming out of our mouth, ourselves speaking. But the mechanisms, the neurological activity is invisible to us and it creates this illusion that the body is somehow separate from the mind. I, I won't go into that because in part I don't even have a language to explain it. So, there's a unity. We have legs that walk. Why? Because when we evolved as the biological animals that we are, and we are biological animals, <clears throat> when we got up on our feet, it was on fields and woods, and feet and legs allowed us to negotiate the bumps and lumps and holes and valleys and hills that we had to climb and go up and go down and the forest that we had to walk through and evolve, miss all the roots and not trip. Right? Now we have concreted over our world and legs really aren't a very effective way of travel. So we invented the wheel. And if we were to revise our bodies at this day and age, we wouldn't give ourselves legs. I imagine we would give ourselves wheels. Much easier to get around on flat floors and flat surfaces uh, and the concrete and asphalt and tar uh, that we negotiate as we maneuver our world. Okay. So we don't have unity. When I studied psychology, it was in a separate department from the biology department, which was a separate department from physics, which was a separate department from chemistry, and separate department from political science, and separate department, department from um, uh, ec economics. And yet, we're all economists, we're all politicians, I have described so many times before, and I deal with, uh, I think, very effectively in my book. Um, we're all physicists. You walk across the street and you see a car coming towards you and you make a calculation. Very few computers can make the calculation unless a lot of numbers are put in. And we do it automatically without the numbers. Do I have a chance of running across the street or should I back up and go back to the street, the corner I was on? Uh, how fast do I have to go? All of this is done almost instantaneously. <clears throat> and if the calculations don't work, uh, we lose and we could end up crippled or dead. <clears throat> so we're all physicists. <clears throat> as I say over and over, we're all artists. The art department is a separate place. Physical education is a separate place. And while all of these things can be studied separately, 
in a reality, they're not separate. They're all part of the world, all part of ourselves and the stories we have and the tools we have studied, created to study the world and create the very stories that we live by. So, one of the issues that is important to understand is that when we talk about uh, where we come from, we ask the question, uh, are we genetically determined? Are we simply a result of the genes we inherited from our parents? Or are we the result of how the environment shapes us? Again, arguments are always breaking out on whether or not a person can change their behavior if, in fact, they're the products of genetics. And this is their fate, if you will, because we're shaped by the genes, by the biology that we inherited. Or can things change if, because the environment can change, and when the environment shapes us differently, we will be different. Well, I think it's important to understand how the environment shapes us and how biology shapes us. Um, but we have a nature that came from our biology, and that nature demands a certain nurture. We are born to people who have to parent us. Someone has to parent us. We don't automatically become anything simply on the basis of biology. And we don't become anything based simply on how we're treated by our parents or our families, even though these are powerful forces that shape us. We come ready expecting certain aspects from our environment. We were invented by the history of our environments. And yet we still don't have a really good language to think of this as a unity. If you have the firstborn child in a family, you have very different parents than the secondborn and the thirdborn. And a child who's born with a physical handicap, a physical problem, has very different parents than the child who was born without that handicap. And I can go into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of variations on this story. Part of the real problem, the ultimate problem that I worry about the most, is the fact that we are also moral philosophers. We make judgments about people and the things that they do and the world that we live in. And these judgments determine, in many ways, how we behave and how we respond to the events that we live through and the people that we interact with and the person that we see in the mirror. Okay. And it makes a tremendous difference if we see something as harmful or helpful, as good or bad. And one of the things I'm seeing in the stories we live by that is most destructive to the country that we're in, other than recognizing the unity of what we are in relation to the world we live in, 
how it needs us and we definitely need it, is that when we make these judgments, we literalize them. And I hear people all the time saying, there is goodness in the world, there is badness in the world. And the dominant religious word for that is evil. There is good and there is evil. A capital G for good and a capital E for evil. And then we apply this to people. These or he or she is a good person. He or she or they are bad or evil persons. And when we say something like that, we end up aggrandizing the good and dehumanizing and demonizing the bad. And in my philosophizing, I believe we have to start telling a story before it's too late, and so I will tell you the story as I see it. There are no good people. There is no bad people. There are none. What there are are people. And some people do things that we judge to be bad, and other people do things that we judge to be good, and that most people at different points in their life do some things that somebody somewhere will judge to be good, and others that will be judged to be bad. But when we apply that to their identity, to the very essence of who they are, and we apply it to the skin color or their religion, six million Jews went into the ovens of Hitler and and his empire because for a thousand years they were judged to be evil people didn't become invented with Hitler. It was invented in a story that was manipulated and used by people of power and believed by people who were indoctrinated by a story that they were severely punished or ostracized for if they disbelieved. And now we're seeing it in this country, which has been more secular and more democratic and more educated and more scientific and more able to philosophize in a way to say there are just people who do good things and wonderful things and bad things or, if you want, evil things. And we are coming apart in this country now. We are coming apart by, if you listen to my, and I hope you will listen to my last broadcast, by an individual with the mentality, with the worldview of a four-year-old who only thinks in categories of separation. And millions of people, for their own reasons and their own history and their own stories, who are accepting the idea that people can be good or people can be bad and the bad people have to be controlled and the good people have to have the power regardless of what they do, 
that others might call bad or even evil. And until he is gone and we can restore some kind of story that our founding fathers created and prayed we would live by, that all human beings are nothing more or less than human. And we are going downhill. And violence is breaking out in which one side hates and dehumanizes and demonizes the other. And the weapons are out and they are increasing and I am terrified. There is no good except what we judge to be good. And there is no good that exists in the world as a force independent of the human beings who behave in ways that we judge to be good. And there is no bad or evil independently in the world as a force except through the actions of those we judge to be doing bad or evil. Everybody is hurting right now. Everybody. People are losing their homes. People don't have enough to eat. And the amount of energy that's being spent in hatred and holding up and living through stories that end in violence and end in destruction of human life, of human property, and of the environment that we require to continue our lives is horrendous. I tend to be pessimistic at times, although most of the time, what some of you might call pessimism, I see as realism. I am really worried. I am really frightened. And I don't know how my story ends. Um, I think I've done enough for today. Uh, I've said what I wanted to say. Nobody has called in. I always hope that someone will call in and discuss my ideas with me. Otherwise, I'm blowing into air. I know I get statistics on how many people <coughs> hear my show at varying points uh, in the archive where it sits. Usually starts out within the first few days, seven, ten. Last week's story is up to 40-something people who have gone and listened to all or part of it. I have stories that go back several years in which they're still being listened to, and the numbers are in the thousands. And I hope I'm heard. And I hope I'm heard as somebody who will make other people think Because as a psychologist, that's what my job was. To take people who came to me suffering because they believed they were inherently defective in some way and find a way to help them change that story so that they could see if there were things they did to hurt others, they could say they were sorry and make restitution and find some way, if possible, to get forgiveness and to change their actions based upon a new story that would show them that it is more in their interest to love others and help others who will then be willing to help them, that that they would be activist citizens to, to, to make sure our democracy, which is built on the idea that we are all just human beings, 
And no matter how much money we have, we're still human beings, or how little, we're still human beings. And whatever skills we have do not make us inherently worth more than somebody or others who don't have those skills. And I was successful with many people. Most success, I think, was in my classroom, in which I taught three years at a music college that went defunct. Otherwise, I never would have left it. 36 years in a community college. (laughs) Uh, (coughs) I'll have to stop having a little reflux. I'm all right. I have to get, I should really bring some water in here. But anyway, I taught at universities for several years as an adjunct professor. Now it's all over. This is my classroom. And I don't do it as much as I think I should. But then again, I don't think I need to should on myself any more than I do. And so I'm going to go have some water and turn on and watch and see uh, exactly what's transpiring in the world around me. My wife will yell at me, why are you watching that television again? All you know is going to upset you, get your stomach upset, and you'll have more reflux. So I wish you all who hear this, whenever you hear this, Good luck, and a story that's built on some science, a lot of art, a lot of reading of good books and good material, of being an active citizen in pursuit of democracy, and doing what you can, all of us, to save our planet and save our children's future. So... So long and good night.